Welcome to Bioethics on Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Jose Lott, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. COVID-19 vaccine mandates continue to be an issue of great concern. And for many people, they challenge fundamental notions of conscience and religious liberty. Earlier this fall, Joe Biden imposed a sweeping federal mandate affecting millions of Americans. And immediately, it was challenged in the federal courts. But questions abound. Is the Biden mandate constitutional? How does the administration justify it? On what grounds is it being challenged? Will it ever be enforced? What about individuals who in conscience cannot accept a COVID-19 vaccine, but risk losing their livelihoods because of it? For perspective on these and other related questions, I'm joined today by Jonathan Berry, a partner with the law firm Boyden Gray and Associates in Washington, DC. Attorney Barry has extensive experience navigating the complexity of federal government processes, not to mention bureaucracy, having worked at both the US Department of Labor and the US Department of Justice. Prior to these roles, he served as chief counsel to the Trump transition team, and he also clerked for US Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. Jonathan Barry, welcome to Bioethics on Air. Joe, thanks so much for having me. It's great to join you today. I have to tell you, usually when we um, do these interviews, I have at least some basic knowledge of the topic uh, in, in, that we're talking about. Today, we're going to talk about mm-hmm. legal issues and federal mandates. And I got to—I got to admit, I am—I am way out of my comfort zone on this one. So, so, <laughs> so you're the expert here. So, uh, so th- this should be fun. But um, John, as a as a new guest on our podcast, and our listeners know this, I always ask our new guests to to give a little background of themselves. So. John, could you uh, tell our listeners a bit about your background, specifically your education, your work experience? I'd really like to hear a bit about uh, clerking for Justice Alito. Mm-hmm. Um, and then talk a bit about your present position at Boyd & Gray. Wonderful. Glad to, Joe. So from, uh, from West Los Angeles originally, uh, came out east uh, to go to college at Yale, where um, very important to me and, and I think important to uh, lots of your listeners uh, is where I was received into the Catholic Church. I'm a convert. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, baptized my senior year of, uh, of college at Yale, uh, which is funny because really at no point in its history has Yale University been a philo-Catholic <laughs> institution. Um, I was going to say, what happened at Yale to bring you into the church? <laughs> but, you know, God, God writes straight with, with some very crooked lines. Well, um, amen to that. Uh, present company included, right? Um, <laughs> amen. Uh, and... Um, I, uh, while, while I was there, I studied, I studied political philosophy uh, and ancient Greek philosophy. Uh, I came down to D.C. I worked in political consulting for a couple of years, uh, then uh, went back up north uh, for law school at Columbia, spent uh, three years there. I, I worked for a, a federal judge on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, court will uh, it'll get another shout out or two uh, later on in our conversation. Um, uh, right after that, um, uh, spent three years at a, a very large law firm called Jones Day, uh, where I had the privilege to assist with a couple different projects um, that touch on uh, religious liberty issues, um, such as assisting with uh, some of the contraceptive mandate litigation uh, that Jones Day did on behalf of a whole host of Catholic entities, um, and also was on the the team that built and defended 
the case in favor of the Bladensburg Memorial Cross, the yep. Peace Cross, yep. uh, World War One Memorial, uh, very close to my house, actually. So I'm, I'm glad that ultimately was vindicated uh, at the Supreme Court. I wouldn't want to have to drive by a stump uh, <laughs> on my commutes. Uh, um, so the, the the big the big win postdated my time, but I was I was there for for developing the case through the through the trial court level. I was I was privileged to be hired by Justice Samuel Alito. Um, let's uh, this would have been 20, 2015. Uh, I spent a year and I spent a year working for him. Um, this is a you know it's 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 an opportunity of a lifetime for anyone who gets to do something like that, and I'm very very grateful for that. In particular, though, I will say that there is a special blessing that comes from working with Justice Alito. Not only is he, not only is he a very talented man, um, he's been he's been at this job as as an appellate lawyer and jurist for um, at this point, gosh, forty five years. Um, he's very very good at what he does. Uh, even even more importantly, that. That immense talent is grounded in it's grounded in faith. Uh, it's grounded in the Catholic faith. Uh, it's grounded in humility, um, and it's a it's a kind of humility that, like uh, like Justice Thomas, whom I also very much an admirer of, I, I believe it, it 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 grounds him and and really um, really sort of undergirds his independence as a jurist. Um, uh, so I'm uh, just very privileged to sort of learn yeah. at his elbow. Um, for yeah. for a year. Hey, can I ask you a, a question? This is a bit off script question. Yeah, this came to mind because I was I was down at the Supreme Court on December first for the oral arguments for Dobbs. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, I was I was I don't know why I was thinking about this, but it's relevant to what you just said. Um, I, I'm thinking, you know, the, the justices obviously they do their work, but I, I got to think a lot of the work is done by. I, I mean, most of the work is probably done by their clerks. Um, the, you know, the, the grind stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm just, you know, obviously the Supreme Court justices are hearing a lot of different cases and whatnot, but I'm just wondering as a clerk for him, like what was, how many hours a day did you work or how many hours a week? What, like and how, in, <laughs> and how intense was it? And I know I don't want to talk about cases or anything like that, but just, sure. I was wondering like, that must've been just nuts. And it was, so it, uh, there was a, there's, there's different Phase, the, the kind of the life cycle of the clerkship tracks a, the um, the year of the term of the court. So I was there for what's called October term 2015, um, which which effectively runs um, July 1st, uh, 2015 through uh, June 30, 2016. Right. And and during that during that life cycle, you are over the summer. You're looking at uh, a lot of uh, certiorari petitions, requests for people for the court to take up right. some appeal, and then you move into oral arguments starting in October when the when the when the term kind of officially and fully begins. And so you you get you get more and more busy as things um, as things build. I would say probably I, I think for for most folks it it, it sort of peaks in April when you have the overlap of the ongoing cert work. You still have oral arguments um, to, um, to in your small way, uh, help help your boss, the justice, prepare for. Um, I should emphasize small way because he he definitely did not need us. I can't say that about all the justices, uh, uh, you know, who all all of them were great. But um, he 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 was especially good at his at his work. Um, uh, and then, um, 
as cases get argued, um, there's work that clerks will do to help the, to assist the justices with researching and writing opinions, majority opinions, concurrences, dissents, that kind of thing. I will say, um, so while I was there, there were there needed to be a fair number of dissents. It was uh, it was substantively it was a it was a challenging year, um, including um, I think probably of, of of greatest relevance for folks is um, the whole women's health v. Hellerstedt yep. um, case uh, regarding the constitutionality of um, Texas's admitting privileges law uh, and uh, ambulatory surgical center law right. related to uh, practice of abortion. Um, and Justice Alito had the principal dissent um, in that case and really had um, some, uh, some, some critical language of what the majority of the court was doing yeah. um, in, that, in that case. Um, uh, and I would add on top of that, um, you know, the, 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 great, the great misfortune of, of Justice Scalia passing away right. uh, in the middle of the term. That, that happened uh, in February uh, of, that, of that year. Um, wow. So... It was um, it was a it was a really you know personally it was it was very much the the, the year there was really a blessing but um, I think in terms of kind of what happened at the court was was very hard. Yeah, I think we need to get together for a beer and, and I'd like to hear more about that. But that oh that, yeah, that's for that's for another time. Tell us uh, tell us what you're doing at Boyd and Gray and Associates now. Sure. Um, so I um, I came on board with Boyd and Gray. Uh, about a year and a half ago in April, 2020. Um, uh, and we, um, I, I, I came on board with Boyden because let me, let me just give a little bit of background on the, on the firm. So ambassador, ambassador Gray was the top lawyer to George HW Bush, all 12 years of the Reagan Bush administration. So right. counsel to the vice president, counsel to the president for that, uh, for that 12 year stretch. And he's built around that. He's he's really built up a career of um, seeking to rein in um, the overreaching federal administrative state. Uh, that's been a major priority of his. Um, and the firm um, really serves as a um, as as a vehicle to, in, in many respects, to to fight um, administrative overreach and to and to really try to achieve sort of more more just outcomes in, mm -hmm. in all kinds of all kinds of areas so we're 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 doing a lot of work on 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 fighting um kind of the irrigation of power by the executive branch we are um we're increasingly getting involved in calling attention to and opposing the excesses of what you could call kind of woke capitalism um uh, as well so there's you know for, just as an example of that there are um, there's increasing numbers of laws out there that are requiring public companies to have their uh, boards of directors meet certain diversity quotas. Right. Yep. And this is not not ideological diversity, not diversity of worldview uh, or even religious diversity, um, but along lines of race and sex, sex and sexual orientation, uh, essentially. Uh, like applying ironically the stereotype that to get diversity of thought we must have more people of type of like you know more people of certain racial group or or more women like the implied premise there being that all women for example think alike which right. is obviously um an offensive stereotype um so 
so so there's that work and then we uh we we do as um as opportunities uh, come up we do engage on uh some of the some of the important cultural questions that that touch on the law um in the in the religious liberty space uh and in the in the and we've also done some work in the life space as well so we filed an amicus brief in uh in the dobbs um abortion yep. case yep. uh we focused a lot on um on the on how the availability of of safe haven laws for uh for babies really starts to change the landscape um and and in fact I, you know she didn't she didn't cite our brief but justice barrett um did repeatedly ask about safe haven laws and the relevance to the argument that um, women need access to abortion because they don't want to be subjected to the burdens of parenting. Right. Does, doesn't doesn't go to the question of pregnancy, but does go to the question of whether someone uh, is going to have to continue to have parental obligations. And safe haven laws have really have negated that premise. Yeah. Um, uh, and then we've we in the in the religious liberty space, just a couple examples um, and stuff. I'm you know proud to be assisting with. Uh, we represent. Um, uh, Aaron and Melissa Klein. Um, these are the Oregon cake bakers. Yep. Um, yep. Uh, in, I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah. So we. Um, so uh, it's in, in many ways it's kind of a it's kind of a companion case to um, Jack Phillips yep. a masterpiece cake shop. Yep. Uh, we the firm. Some of this was, in fact, most of this was before I got here, but uh, the case is still live. The Oregon Supreme Court had had ruled against the Kleins um, and. Uh, Boyd and Grain Associates asked the, the U.S. Supreme Court to review that. Um, they held on to it while Masterpiece Cake Shop was being decided. And then when Masterpiece was handed down, uh, the Supreme Court threw out what the Oregon Supreme Court had done and sent it back down saying, all right, you need to reconsider now in light of uh, what we just said in the Masterpiece case. Um, so that's uh, that that's actually still pending with the Oregon Court of Appeals right now. Um, they are, um, they're taking their time. I'll put it that yeah. way, uh, yeah. with the decision there. Um, and, and Jack and, Phillips has been sued again as well. So, oh my goodness. Yes. That <laughs> his, his, his via Dolorosa continues. Right. <laughs> um, uh, and, um, and he's, he's a really, he's a really brave guy. Um, and, um, and good on him for continuing to fight that fight, but it's, it's, um, yeah, that, that's, that's going to continue. Yeah. Um, uh, we're, uh, more recently we, we've, um, we've been filing some, um, some amicus, uh, briefs, friend of the court briefs with, uh, uh, getting into questions of, of kind of, uh, church autonomy. So we, we filed a brief with the ninth circuit court of appeals, uh, in support of a case, uh, brought by, uh, uh, being litigated by the Beckett fund for religious liberty, um, defending the autonomy of, I believe it was uh, fuller theological seminary. Um, to um, apply its um, its uh, its uh, Protestant Christian standards right. um, to who can uh, who can be a student at Fuller, for example. And so we uh, we took a deeper dive into uh, some of the background of the church autonomy doctrines and the uh, the Ninth Circuit. Maybe you can say begrudgingly agreed <laughs> um, and 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 held for Fuller recently. Um, Though in an unpublished opinion um, from from judges who may not have um, wanted to get into it any more than they had to, yeah. Um, wow. So and we've we've got more a, a little more work of that kind coming down the pike. Uh, also exploring 
some possible uh, possible matters involving um, religious accommodation of employees um, who are who are having their religious beliefs or bur- exercise burdened by uh, some kind of corporate policy um, oh. as uh, as well. Yeah, plenty of work going on. Boy, we could uh, we could have multiple follow up podcasts on some of these cases. It, it's it's just fascinating stuff. But let's, let's... I need some beer for that one, Joe. It just uh, <laughs> or scotch. I've got scotch in my office. Maybe we can. Maybe yeah, we'll figure it out. I, I'm I'm good with that. I mean, I, I, <laughs> any time. All right, so let's let's kind of move to our our topic for the day, and that's it's the mm-hmm. it's the Biden federal vaccine mandate. Mm-hmm. And, and before getting into the, the details, so to speak, or, or commentary on, on what um, what our, our president has done, I was wondering if you could give our listeners and me as well mm-hmm. a, a brief overview of the legal context surrounding mandated vaccines. Mm-hmm. Um, what have the courts held in the past on this issue and how relevant are these rulings from the past to our situation today? Right. So historically, Joe, um, the place where this has come up the most is in some kind of vaccination mandate being issued by a state um, Mm -hmm. or a local government uh, body. Um, And there uh, there is um, there is there is typically going to be much broader authority. So in, in our in our Forgive the 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 little con law uh, lesson here, but we have our so we've got we've got this we've got this this federal system of government. The states um, predate our our current federal gov- uh, national government um, as sovereigns, uh, and they they gave over some of their sovereignty to this uh, to this federal government as as created um, in the Constitution. the The federal government is an entity of 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 limited powers. Um, it's it only has those powers given to it real ultimately from the from the people, but really um, in, in large part through the states. And so, um, whereas whereas states states possess what's called the police power, um, this is a uh, this is the traditional power to protect um, public welfare, public health, public morals, um, uh, and it's not uh, it, it's not an unlimited power, but it's it's quite robust and quite broad. And it's, you know, broadly speaking, it's only going to be limited by uh, state law um, or maybe limited by our, our federal, uh, federal constitution or laws made um, uh, under the constitution as well. So I'm talking about this because that's, that's the main place historically where this has been exercised. Maybe, maybe um, the most prominent case that, that seems to be coming up a lot is a case called Jacobson v. Massachusetts. Um, this was a case in which the state of Massachusetts had, in uh, roughly a little after the turn of the century, I believe, uh, mandated turn of the twentieth century, right. uh, mandated inoculations against smallpox um, to deal with an outbreak of of smallpox. And and the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, um, said that there were no federal constitutional violations um, there. There's there's kind of other ways in which um, even federal constitutional law of kind of individual rights restricting state authority um, has has evolved since that time, but it, um, it it remains the case that if you're talking about a a state or local government uh, mandating vaccines, broadly speaking, they're going to be on uh, on on broader authority. The the place that's um, 
the, the place where you know it really starts to get a lot stickier, of course, uh, is when is when you've got the federal government right. um, stepping in. Right. Which is where we're going. All right. Yes. So earlier this fall, I believe is the beginning of uh, September, um, Joe Biden issued mm-hmm. a federal vaccine mandate. And I know we're going to focus really on one kind of uh, uh, one group nece- mm-hmm. uh, that that the the mandate applies to. But um, Jonathan, correct me if I'm wrong. So the, the, the Biden mandate applies to federal employees, federal contractors. Mm hmm. Healthcare professionals working in organizations that are kind of under the umbrella or the funding umbrella of HHS, which is a lot. Of, a lot. Yep. Yeah. And I think probably what we're going to focus on here, private employers that have 100 plus uh, employees. Is that, a, is that a general summary yeah, of who the vaccine mandate applies to? That, that that's right. I mean, you can you can you can split hairs and talk about them as 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 separate mandates. Um, but yeah, those are the four. Each each of those comes out of kind of different head of, of, of authority or authorization. But yeah, those are that's that's the the big ones. All right. So with with that in mind, what um, what does the Biden federal mandate demand? And what is its enforcement mechanism or maybe mechanisms is mm-hmm. a better way to answer that mm-hmm. question. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I'll, I'll um, yeah, and I, as you say, I'll, I'll, I'll zero in on the, um, the OSHA um, private employer mandate. So Department of Labor, where I, I, I had the privilege of working for, uh, for two years, which was a lot of fun. Um, a lot of it was, um, a lot of it was working with OSHA, in fact, but the, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration at DOL has um, has responsibility for setting um, workplace health and safety standards, and it was in in stated pursuance of of kind of that responsibility and 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 according uh, authority um, that OSHA has required uh, this uh, this vaccination mandate. So it it applies to it applies to private uh, employers with a hundred or more employees. Not not by location, really, just by kind of overall business size. Uh, you've got fifty in one place and sixty in another place. You're going to be covered uh, across them all, um, and it it requires that employers create workplace policies uh, requiring their em- employees, their workers, um, to get to get vaccinated, to to stay vaccinated, and and if they if they don't. Um, they are they're required to wear masks and be subject to a uh, to weekly uh, COVID tests that they can't they can't be completely self-administered. There has to be uh, some other kind of witness or authorization. There's a lot of there's a lot of details there, right. um, but it's the the kind of the lead and the sort of the stated um, purpose in many respects is really to kind of drive up uh, vaccination vaccination rates. All right, mm-hmm. so John, what what is from your perspective? What's pro- what's problematic with the uh-huh. Biden mandate from a legal and or constitutional perspective? And I don't know if those are if legal and constitutional are necessarily the same thing or if they're different. Maybe you can talk about that. But what's yeah. what's problematic with the mandate? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so and it, it starts it, these, these issues. You're right to anticipate these issues kind of blend into each other. Um, uh, so a, a, a couple of things. Um, one is that. Um, uh, OSHA is doing this under the exercise of its emergency powers, um, uh, and um, 
uh, the 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 OSH Act, the law that creates created OSHA and set this out, says that um, there needs to be a there needs to be a grave danger uh, present, and that the the mandate uh, being issued um, needs to be necessary mm-hmm. um, to um, to combat that grave danger. So even on that kind of on on that level. Uh, if you, you know, I would, I, I would argue, and I have argued in, in our, in our court filings, um, that there is, um, there is no grave danger being posed by this kind of this residuum of, of, of unvaccinated, uh, workers. We are at or approaching herd immunity in, in, in places all over, all over the country, um, uh, and like when you when you add in um, the uh, the protective effect that many people have from natural immunity from having had and recovered from COVID, um, just the, the case is not there for for there being a grave danger, uh, and that there are it, it's just not it's not necessary to require something like this. Um, so that's those are those are questions that go to basically like the the statutory test that right. OSHA's got to meet. And then the Supreme Court has said that's a very, very demanding test. Right. Um, most most of the emergency standards that OSHA has issued, and it hasn't used this emergency process a lot, most of them either partially or completely blow up in the face of court challenge. Right. Um, and, and my anticipation is that we're going to see the same here. Um, the, uh, the 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 area that gets into sort of more of the constitutional considerations. Um, is that to to kind of respect Congress's role as the lawgiver um, uh, in our in our, in our federal government? The the courts have said that they are not going to lightly presume that um, Congress gives an executive agency like OSHA um, the power to decide um, so-called major questions right. um, of, of 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 economic or social policy and and. You know whether to impose a kind of a sweeping new uh, vaccination regime uh, on the country is contained within the very kind of sparse text of of the OSH Act. It, it really it really beggars belief uh, to be to be honest. And so we've we've said that. And then even 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 beyond that, so that 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 gets into the question of like has Congress given this big blank check um, to to OSHA? We would argue and think there's a lot of good court authority for backing us up on this. That no, Cong- Congress actually did not give, did not bake, hide the uh, hide the elephant of a of a vaccine man uh, power um, inside the mouse hole of this kind of this emergency um, uh, of this emergency provision of the OSH Act. Um, but then even even deeper, we, we argue as a backup, even if Congress. Um, did give that blank check. Does the Constitution allow um, uh, that kind of blank check to be handed out? Does it allow that kind of delegation of of legislative power? Um, we like we argue no. Um, the Supreme Court has 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 said some things going um, going this way uh, in specifically the the OSHA context. Like this is not the first time uh, the, the the court has said basically. We need to if 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 OSHA's power was as broad as it claims, um, that would be an unconstitutional delegation of legislative power. And then one one other piece that um, I, I think has come up uh, from time to time is 
and, and other litigants, we're, we don't talk about it in our briefs, but others have, uh, is whether this is something um, properly within the scope of Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce. Um, mm-hmm. Like my my kind of refraining um, from taking an injection, you know, it's pretty far afield from uh, from anything we might call interstate commerce. Um, and the, the the Supreme Court talked about this in the Obamacare case uh, as as well, where they I think everyone agreed. Well, a majority of the court agreed that there could you know, the federal government could not mandate Congress could not mandate that everyone eat broccoli, uh, for uh, for example. And this is it's a lot of broccoli here. Yeah, yeah, there is. No, that that's actually really really helpful. Um, it, it 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 answers it or clarifies a lot of things for me. I, I asked you a question, and I don't know if if uh, well when I sent you the question, I I asked you what was problematic from the the legal constitutional perspective, and then I followed up asking what's problematic from a regulatory perspective. It did uh, did you already answer that, or are there other regulatory challenges that are at play as well? There are there there can be there can be other regulatory challenges. The I think the the biggest one is is really whether um, this particular regulation meets the special test for an emergency power. Um, but there's 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 others as well. But that, I think that's in my view at least that's the biggest one. That's the biggest one. Got it. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Thanks. How is the Biden administration defending this mandate? You 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 gave a a pretty strong I would say. Uh, argument against it, but how are they defending it, and is it defensible? Um, you know, ultimately, Joe, I, I I don't think it is, and that's you know, it's always it's always helpful if a lawyer um, can uh, can get up there and make and, and make arguments that um, that are that are good and that are <laughs> that that are sound even, um, and I in in this case, I certainly believe that um, the. I mean, they're they're defending it by taking a, for example, on this on that major questions piece. They say, they'll say, well, there was in fact a. That's the question of, you know, did Congress write this big blank check um, uh, to to the executive branch? And they they would argue, reading the text of the OSH Act, that kind of any anything that meets this this test of being a a workplace. Um, a workplace hazard, uh, where in this case there is a grave danger, there is, ne- uh, and it's necessary um, that 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 Congress has already done that. Like Congress has, in fact, signed that check um, and said OSHA, you know, just fill in whatever whatever number you want um, yeah. on there. So that's that's the response, um, in part, at, at least on that. Um, they'll also argue, and there's and there's 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 supportive case law uh, related to this. That um, um, arguing that constitutionally Congress can't cut um, such a blank check, um, can't delegate, is um, it's a, that's that's historically a pretty high bar to meet. Um, right. the, the Supreme Court has has blessed a lot of delegations. You know, my part of our response is be that as it may. In the in the OSHA context specifically, the Supreme Court has actually come down pretty hard. Uh, on this on this exact issue, um, so that's that's kind of where uh, some of the state of play here in terms of the Biden administration's defense. Yeah, huh. now you you um, in in your introduction when you were talking about what uh, the work of Boyd and Gray, I could see where the connection um, between mm-hmm. the work of your law firm and um, and and 
you know, seeking to uh, oppose this this federal mandate. But I was wondering if you could tell me specifically why did Boyden, why did Boyden Gray and Associates become involved in mm-hmm. the the COVID, the federal COVID mandate mandate issue? So I, I I think it was it was a combination of of two things, Joe. Um, one is that as I, I think you've already picked up that so Ambassador Gray and I, I as well. Um, very interested in um, uh, in fighting sort of improper federal administrative state overreach, and this is a this is a pretty spectacular example um, of of exactly that. Um, uh, 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 Ambassador Gray has also he's also been uh, very interested in um, a lot of the a lot of the workings of how the how the regulatory regulatory state and businesses interested in um, surrounding issues have 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 guided the course of policy responses to COVID nineteen. So he 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 for example he recently co-authored uh, an op-ed with um, uh, former HUD secretary and maybe more important for this neurosurgeon Ben Carson Ben Carson yeah um, uh, talking about um, how problematic it was that we've been, as a society and the government, um, neglecting the importance of sort of early therapeutic treatments for COVID nineteen. Yep. Yep. Uh, in the rush to focus on vaccines, there's a lot of there's a lot of neglect there um, for for treatments um, of, uh, of 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 various kinds. Um, uh, and, and so that's um, that that's been a big a, a big big interest of his. Um, for for my part, um, I would also say I think part of how we we got engaged on this was that the um, uh, uh, we were we were we were contacted by uh, Job Creators Network, um, a, a small business association. I first got to know um, while I was at the Labor Department, um, and uh, I think they were interested in. Uh, in working with us um, because of my background with DOL and put some of the regulatory process there right. um, at the Department of Labor and working with OSHA. Yeah. Now, I know you can't get into, well, you know, I don't, I don't want you to betray confidences. Well, actually, I do because I'd be really interested to hear about that's, it. But, that's but, always but, the juicy stuff, right? But yeah, yeah of but, course. But that's over a beer. That, that's, not a, yes. that's not on a podcast, but whatever. But I, I was wondering if you could tell us, again, without um, betraying confidences, uh, what specific action... Boyden Gray has brought against the federal mandate. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have um, we have already we we filed a um, a lawsuit or called petition for review in this case um, against OSHA's um, OSHA's mandate. Um, uh, we did that. Gosh, it feels like a lifetime ago, but it would have been on uh, it was on November four, um, uh, and. Um, uh, so, you know, making making a lot of the arguments you and I just talked about 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 all the flaws. Um, uh, we uh, we filed that in the in the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, one of the heartland appellate courts um, in the, in the U.S., um, covering the sort of headquarters of the court is in St. Louis, Missouri, um, related to where a lot of our um, a lot of our plaintiffs or petitioners where they where they're based, multiple folks in. Um, uh, in Minnesota, for example, which is part of that court, covered by that court, um, uh, and so we are we are presently uh, litigating alongside several other challengers um, to OSHA's mandate, uh, the um, that law that excuse me um, regulation 
uh, in in court. It's it's been transferred. All all those challenges have been consolidated in a single court of appeals, the sixth Sixth Circuit, uh, which is headquartered in Ohio, but um, including covering uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Michigan as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are right now. Um, we're waiting on what that court's going to court's going to do. Probably the thing that's um, there's been interesting developments um, uh, uh, recently. Um, the um, I think most most importantly, the court is uh, is probably going to decide very soon the question of whether to allow the mandate to come back into effect. Because right now, people may not appreciate this. The OSHA mandate. Um, is has been suspended by court order. It was suspended by, and I said I'd come back to it. The Fifth Circuit the Fifth Court of Appeals, place yep. where I where I clerked. That's New Orleans, correct? Yeah, headquartered in New Orleans yep. um, and covering. Um, yeah, I know Louisiana, something. Mississippi. There you go. No, that's I, that's I great. one thing right. <laughs> um, the Sixth and, and Circuit is actually where we're used to live in Cincinnati. So oh, that's, nice. that's two things I know. Excellent, excellent. Um, <laughs> uh, we. Um, uh, and that's just as an aside, as a real a privilege of of clerking on the Fifth Circuit is that you get to take uh, you get to take trips regularly to New Orleans yeah. and enjoy the incredible cuisine that New Orleans. <laughs> you just you leave you leave that job fatter and happier. Um, <laughs> uh, it's a great it's it, it's great. Um, but um, you know, so very more more shortly after very shortly after the the mandate was issued um, by OSHA, um, Fifth Circuit stepped in um, in response to another case and said you can't. Uh, you can't enforce this. Um, it's likely it's likely illegal, and so we're going to suspend it from taking effect while the litigation plays out. So right. the uh, right now the mandate is is not in effect, but it could and may uh, spring back into effect any day now if the Sixth Circuit, which now has the case, decides to uh, to to dissolve the stay that the um the fifth circuit had put into place which they 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 have the um procedurally the sixth circuit has the authority to do do that yeah Mm -hmm. i just i'd I'd like to go back i want to ask you a question about where you know what you think the sixth circuit may do and may it may even go to the u.s supreme court but as i was doing research for this and i I do our our bioethics public policy report every two weeks Mm -hmm. so I, i get all this stuff and and i'm seeing whether it's circuit court or district court, um, judges are are turning are, are saying no to this mandate, kind of yes. en masse. And I mean, there's just a laundry list. We don't need to go through them all. But I guess the question is: Are there any courts that have upheld the vaccination mandate? Yes, I'm. I'm. That's an unfair. Qu- well, I, you didn't know I was going to ask you that question, so <laughs> um, I'm not asking for it. But but is, the answer is yes. You're saying. I, I believe so. I, I believe so. Um, uh, there's been. I know that not not all the challenges to the other um, other parts of of the Biden vaccine mandate. Um, not all of those have been have been fully successful. But there, but there, but there have been a lot of courts starting to jump in and to say that the federal contractor vaccine mandate um, is illegal. Um, or that at least as a preliminary matter, yep. um, uh, uh, or that the multiple courts, and in fact, this uh, on a preliminary basis, this question is now at the Supreme Court uh, about the the, C, the Medicare Medicaid healthcare workers right. uh, vaccine mandate um, right uh, right now. Um, but the the kind of the definitive word for the time being on the OSHA uh, component 
uh, or the OSHA mandate um, is that it's it's kind of likely illegal and suspended. Although again, that the, the Sixth Circuit does have the prerogative uh, to revisit that. Yeah, and actually, Ed, I'm going to ask you another question that may be a bit unfair. Um, and we're just for our listeners, we're recording this on December 17th, so just to yes. get some context in, in case things change. But just over the past couple of weeks, the U.S. Supreme Court has refused to hear appeals from now i know these i think these are more on state levels um healthcare uh-huh. workers from maine and also i believe healthcare workers from new york who had who were fighting yes. against those state mandates those are those are different from all of this i'm i, I just want can you clarify yeah those are those are different because they uh these are again these are these are issuances of a state um right. which as i said before has has broader authority um and tend to tend to get into kind of one of the places where a state's authority is limited is is going to be if it's infringing on religious exercise right. um uh uh and so you have and what's what's important to note there joe is that those um those challenges have not to my knowledge, have not uh, lost. It basically, the the Supreme Court thus far um, has refused to take what is, you know, an out of the ordinary step um, to to step in at an early stage and um, and and hold the status quo in place. And I, I think in I believe in both of those cases that you mentioned in Maine and New York, um, uh, three justices have said that. Um, they they thought it was right to step in. Right. Um, yeah. Justice Alito, Justice Thomas, and Justice Gorsuch. Gorsuch. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. All right. So so let's go back. And I know you've mentioned this a couple of times, but just kind of put a bow on this. So we're as I said, we're speaking today on December seventeenth. So the status of the mandate now. I, I, I'm going to assume is this is this the status of all the various? Uh, excuse me. The 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 mandate that applies to all the various different groups that we mentioned before. Or is it I, would just focus, the OSHA? I would focus us on OSHA. Um, there's just the, the the landscape is a lot more complicated for okay. the for the others. So, so for the OSHA mandate, uh, so the status of it is that is that it is at the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals mm-hmm. in yes. Cincinnati, and it's their purview to do essentially what they're going to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, any idea a when the court will hear the case and when it will rule, mm-hmm. and b what do you think they will what do you think they will rule? So, uh, I, I think that they um, those two are those two are related because if they right right now the status quo is that um, the mandate is not in effect. Um, okay. It's been the, the Fifth Circuit's order says uh, this shall not be enforced while the litigation kind of works works itself out. And is that a um, nationwide injunction? I uh, that is a. Uh, that is that is a surprisingly complicated question, um, <laughs> but probably, okay. uh, pro- <laughs> um, I think it's a, I think it's probably the, the fair way to put it. You're um, such a lawyer. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, that's I, I take that as a compliment. Um, so um, the uh, if but now the the trick is if the Sixth Circuit is going to uh, let the mandate snap back into place. Without kind of further unusual action, um, the compliance deadline's coming up. Um, it's it's January four, um, six, 60 days after the issuance uh, of uh, of this of this thing. And so, you know, that's as of as of December seventeen by my calendar. That's not a lot of time, um, and especially because it's it's not you know it's not just hey everyone's got to go be vaccinated. We're talking about businesses getting into place. Um, all sorts of policies and procedures and, and protocols and, and stuff like that. Um, so uh, if if the Sixth Circuit is going to 
going to reopen this thing and reactivate the mandate while the further litigation plays out. Um, they're giving businesses a very short runway. So that that puts some, in my view at least, that puts some real pressure if um, if they're going to uh, dissolve the stay and reactivate the OSHA mandate, they're going to do it sooner rather than later. Um, uh, on the uh, kind of what they're going, to, what they're actually going to do on the merits, um, I, I don't want to speculate too much. What, what I will, what I can point you to is um, the there are, there are tea leaves contained in a a procedural, though very important ruling. Um, the court um, did make there was a, there was a there was a petition. Several people put to ask the court to hear the case. What's called on banc um, as an initial matter. Normally, appellate courts operate. You get a randomly drawn three judge panel out of that court, um, and then sometimes the full or on banc court agrees to rehear a case. Uh, and and the court in this case denied that petition by an eight eight split. Um, so it's, that's as close as you can get, um, just, you know, tie goes to the status quo. And so the normal course, uh, proceeds and the, um, eight judges in dissent led by, uh, chief judge, Jeff Sutton is very sharp lawyer, clerk for justice Scalia. He was Ohio solicitor general, uh, or state solicitor. I think the title was at the time. Um, and, and, and in my view, someone who is, very much respected by all the justices of the Supreme Court, including Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Kavanaugh, and Justice Barrett. Um, he he wrote a pretty pretty scathing dissent, saying not only was this the right kind of case to take, it's important enough that we should have just gone uh, to hear it in the as a full matter uh, from the get go. But here's why he he actually goes into the merits and say here's why um, uh, this this OSHA uh, regulation is likely illegal. Uh, that is at least suggestive um, that the three-judge panel, not sure, we don't know who it is, the three-judge panel that's going to hear the stay may rule in favor of dissolving the stay and letting it letting it come back in place. But, you know, uh, no one no one can know for sure um, who who that's or how that's how that's going to go. Yeah. And that that's that's of course that's all kind of the the preview round before any any full merits, although depending on how the stay question ultimately gets adjudicated up to the Supreme Court, uh, that may end up deciding uh, the entire thing when it comes to OSHA, because these emergency standards actually expire um, uh, uh, six months um, after being promulgated. They are they are time limited, and so if um, if effectively there's a stay uh, while litigation plays out through May, it, it doesn't matter. Um, it's there'll never be a chance for it to take effect Oy. before it expires. Oy. I know you mm-hmm. said you don't want to read the tea leaves, but I'm, I'm going to ask you the question anyway. Look into your crystal ball. How, how is all of this resolved? How do, so, you, how do you think it's going to be resolved? I mean, I, I think that, I, I believe that ultimately, Joe, um, uh, this is this is very likely to be resolved at the Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that um, the closest analog really is there was a... Um, the Biden administration attempted to do something similar, taking a pretty pretty generic, um, uh, uh, or really just kind of a different statute that doesn't talk about this stuff um, uh, relating to the Centers for Disease Control. Um, and, and out of that, they tried to shoehorn a, a nationwide um, moratorium on evictions um, as kind of a, uh, a COVID mitigation measure. Um, and the Supreme Court uh, eventually 
um, uh, threw that out, saying that we're not going to we're not going to uh, we're not going to say that this this elephant of a, of an eviction moratorium is contained in the mouse hole of what Congress actually wrote in the law related to the CDC there, um, and I, I think that's it. So you are, and they like the court says, look, we we think that. Uh, we think COVID-19 is a serious issue, but that doesn't directly answer the question of whether an agency has has lawful authority to deal with it. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I think that's, I, I, I believe we've argued that that's on all fours with this case. And I, I, I think there are, um, I think there's a majority of justices um, who, um, who would be inclined to agree with that. All right, very good. This concludes part one of my interview with Jonathan Berry. In part two, John and I discuss the impact of COVID vaccine mandates on individual Americans. We address religious and conscience objection, what federal law requires and does not require with regard to seeking a religious or conscience exemption, and what people can do if they face termination from employment if they refuse a vaccine. For more information on these topics and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our newsletter or to our Bioethics Public Policy Report, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot. Archived editions of our podcasts are available on our website, please hover on the blogs and podcast button on the main page and then click bioethics on air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts and would like to support them as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, please go to our website again, ncbcenter.org and click on the red donate button. Thank you for listening and may God's peace be with you.